Hello, everyone, and welcome to Independent Clause, your anthropomorphic writing and literature podcast. Episode 7, also known as Episode 5B, Monsters. Hi, everybody. Last time we left off talking about horror in general. In this episode, I want to get into horror as it relates to anthropomorphic fiction writing, as well as a suggestion from listener Rechan that I cover monsters a little bit as well. As before, we will be talking about horror, which means covering some topics that may squick or make people uncomfortable. Assault, murder, violation of the self. All of those things are going to be present in this episode, or possibly. So if they bother you, or if you have a serious aversion to such things, uh, it's best to skip over this episode and pick back up next time. I will here be talking about fictional monsters, or historical ones that can be used in fiction. I would rather not discuss present-day, real-world monsters. Right now, they're one horrifying bridge too far. So last time, I left off a better explanation of a particular subgenre of horror that Morrison mentioned, so let me expand on that a little bit now. Uh, that genre is body horror. Now, the name is pretty self-explanatory. The key element is a graphically described mutilation or other destruction of the body. Examples abound that deal with parasites or creatures that invade the body. In Alvin Schwartz's infamous trilogy of scary stories to tell in the dark, one story deals with a girl who's bitten on the face by a spider, and then one day in the bath, the bite, which has been growing larger, explodes into a swarm of baby spiders. Stephen King has flirted with body horror in some of his works. It's certainly an element in misery wherein Annie Wilkes hobbles and tortures author Paul, and comes out fully in Dreamcatcher, where his creature is literally dubbed Shit Weasels. I would think you can guess why. Clive Barker is a master of body horror. His Cenobites from Hellbound Heart, as well as the character Frank, not only horrify because of the mutilation that they've undergone, but also the knowledge that they derived immense pleasure from it. As Frank describes it, the Cenobites showed him an experience beyond the limits, pain and pleasure indivisible. And from a BDSM standpoint, I can assure you that the Cenobites' particular methods are neither safe nor sane nor consensual. Now, if you're unfamiliar with The Hellbound Heart, it was turned into a film in the 80s called Hellraiser. If you're a horror fan at all, you're probably familiar with that film's lead Cenobite, Pinhead. If not, certainly you can Google him. The other bit of horror I gave just a little bit of short shrift to is cosmic horror. You may hear this, re hear this referred to as mythos horror or just Lovecraftian horror after one of the pioneers of the style, H.P. Lovecraft. The idea behind cosmic horror is to sort of pull back the camera and show a person just how powerless and insignificant they are by comparison to beings whose thought processes and biology are so alien that humanity exists to them as ants do to humans. It is a horror that is born from something so alien that it cannot be comprehended or understood, or from giving characters a perspective that their minds are incapable of interpreting. You'll hear people joke about non-Euclidean angles and non-Euclidean geometry. Well, on its surface, that sounds ridiculous, but if you think about it, our entire worldview and, and concept of the universe geometrically 
is Euclidean. And so if you tried to apply a non-Euclidean worldview to our universe as it exists, that would probably break your sanity. Um, definitely not a horror book, but uh, think of it like the Total Perspective Vortex from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy book series by Douglas Adams. The Total Perspective Vortex shows a person the entire universe with a tiny little dot that says, you are here. And it's known to drive most people completely mad and destroy their souls. I'm always hesitant to recommend the writings of Lovecraft without a caveat. His works are very dense and difficult to get through. But more than that, Lovecraft himself was a flaming xenophobic racist. Although he did get better, quote unquote, closer to the end of his life, due to actual exposure to the outside world, it doesn't change the fact that some of his stories are either thinly veiled allegories about miscegenation, that is, the mixing of the races for those not up on your half-wit bigot pseudoscience, or just have references in them that are indisguisably racist. The name of the black cat in Rats in the Walls, for example. Um, it's, well, I'm not going to say it, but it's N-word man. That said, Lovecraft was partly, although not wholly, a product of his time. If you can ignore some of the worst stories, like Red Hook, there is a lot of good work there to be seen. Call of Cthulhu at the Mountains of Madness both come highly recommended. I've been doing a lot of talking so far in this podcast overall about writing in general, and I realize I need to offer up my thoughts on anthropomorphic characters a little bit more fully. So with that in mind, I've put together a few tips I've come up with for writing anthropomorphic animal characters in a horror setting. As I've said repeatedly, one of the things that horror does is to take the normal and make it abnormal. Humans are frightened of the dark because we are primarily visual creatures. For the sighted, our vision is usually our primary sense. When we lose it or have it reduced in a situation where our life is at risk, it drives the tension up. So what about an animal character? When you're writing a, a horror story involving furries, you should exploit those animal differences possibly even more than you normally would in a piece of furry fiction. Use them to your advantage. In my story for Bleak Horizons, I have an alien race who has a primary sense of temperature, and their idiolect, their particular combination of linguistic syntax and vocabulary, is built around that idea. They will say things like, you are hot and cold at once, to mean that someone is not making sense. Uh, to freak out a creature like that, what could you do? Well, you make that sense useless. If they can't sense temperature and they rely on it, that's going to build tension and fear. Something is very, very wrong. Or if something that is alive and moving but cold rather than warm that would be like you or I spotting an actual zombie. But let's think about dogs or various other canids. What are dogs' primary senses? Well, we always think of smell, of course, hearing, and then followed by visual acuity of movement. Now that last one they share with many predators, so we'll leave that one for a bit. Have you ever been in a room or in a place that was so insulated and so quiet you could hear this hum in your own ears. 
You could hear every joint and every movement inside your body. It's unnerving. There's apparently a sensory deprivation room which can cause severe psychological and possibly physiological trauma if you're in there too long. And too long for this room means more than a few minutes. Now imagine if hearing were the primary sense you had. Think about what would build tension. What would frighten you? Phantom noises? Voices you can't place a location of might do it. A complete lack of sounds when you know there should be some. A person visiting the engineering bay set of Star Trek The Next Generation might get this, as the ship's characteristic hum and the thrumming of the warp core, those were all added in post-production. The set was quiet. It really drives home the, it's quiet, a little too quiet, bit of cliché dialogue. In attempting to write such things, I ran into a problem. It's very difficult to describe a negative consistently and have it be frightening or build tension. An effective way of working around this is to make any sound that is made significant. Let your characters seize desperately onto each one. Let them feel just a little relief until they hear something they shouldn't or stop hearing something that they should. Scent is another one. The absence of scent is very different than if someone has attempted to remove a scent. If you want to remove a scent, you can employ chemicals to remove or overpower it. In a furry world, there are bound to be specialized sprays and chemicals to make that easier. For cleaning's sake, if nothing else. Uh, in Kyle Gold's Forrester universe, there is a, a, a product called NutriScent that is primarily used by canids or foxes in airplanes or uh, other such tight quarters. But there's a huge difference between antiseptic and completely lacking in scent. Sometimes people will make an occasional joke about smelling burnt toast, which is a reference to the widely held belief that the smell indicates a stroke, though it can also indicate several other health conditions and probably shouldn't be joking about it. We've all probably experienced that moment when we have a very strong memory of a person or place and the memory of the smell makes us believe we can actually smell it, if only for a moment. Use that to your advantage. The scent of a dead friend or lover that a furry character knows very well can put them on edge, or it can make them curious enough to investigate where perhaps they ought not to go. Very often in furry, we can get away with zipperback characters. A thanks to the podcasters over at Fangs and Fonts for reminding me that that is a term we can use. But I think it's often only true in a world that is mostly like ours. Zootopia mostly played around with animals' predatory nature and size differences, and it was fine because we went in expecting it. I think, though, that the farther you get from our reality as it exists, the more being a furry probably needs to matter. Horror may take place in a world like ours, but a horror story is already taking things and turning them on their head. If you have a large cat, like a tiger, being stalked by something akin to Jason Voorhees, and the tiger doesn't employ their claws, that's going to stand out. Why wouldn't you use your natural weapons? If you're guided by scent, you're going to sniff around, either consciously or unconsciously, and you're going to know when your house doesn't smell right. And that finally leads me to the title of this episode, Monsters. 
How do you make your monsters frightening to a furry character? This is where story planning will help. Pick your character's species carefully and pay attention to what traits they might possess as an anthropomorphic animal and build your antagonist around their strengths and weaknesses. But don't just stick to those strengths and weaknesses that are a part of their animal nature. Remember, too, that these characters are anthropomorphic. They're really more human than they are animal, ultimately, because of their ability of developed cognition. This goes back to all the stuff I've talked about in general regarding horror, but it needs to be looked at through the lens of those animal characteristics. Once again, a person living in the quote-unquote real world will check out the odd sound in their basement or the blown fuse in the dark because the things we know of in slasher movies don't happen in real life. That's why in The Walking Dead, the characters go through what they go through with the walkers. In that universe, zombie media like Night of the Living Dead never existed as a guide. Zootopia gave us a good example of what happens if you take away an uplifted animal's developed cognition. You get a feral animal, possibly a killer predator. A furry version of that might become something like Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers, or worse. But slashers don't represent all of horror, and they fall into a lot of expectations and tropes. And some other things you look at might be, what if you gave your character a taste for the, f the meat of fellow sapient life? Books like Kyle Gold's Argea Universe have a religion in place that forbids the tasting of blood or flesh of other sapient creatures. It's among the most serious taboos that exist in that world for a character to suddenly start to develop that taste in a civilized society, would cause huge problems, psychologically and societally. So inner demons are a thing you can use to great effect. Haunted house stories can also be tweaked and twisted to make strong use of the furry nature of your characters, as we've already suggested. In a world where animals are anthropomorphic, it may also help to consider going the other direction with your creatures, H.P. Lovecraft and August Derleth can be an inspiration here. We focus on the humanity of our animal characters so much because our advanced abilities of cognition are very important to us as human beings. A malevolent spirit or consciousness or our own inner demons can be frightening. A creature who has lost its means of thought can be frightening too. But what about something whose thought processes are so alien to us that we cannot hope to communicate with it? Perhaps even comprehend it. A feral tiger trying to eat us, we understand. But alien creatures who remove our brains and place them into jars and carry them through space is a very different thing. In my story that I mentioned, my monster moves in a very particular way, without appearing to have moved, yet appearing closer. A predatory species would have difficulty processing that movement. It would be completely foreign to them on a visceral level. But let's shift gears and coast along the tracks that lead to Thriller Town for a little bit. Often people want to call horror a subgenre of thriller or some other such nonsense, and a large part of that has come from the glut of horror that hit in the 80s when Stephen King became immensely popular. It became the in thing for marketing to not call your novel horror, but instead supernatural thriller or something along those lines. Even today, we don't have dedicated horror shelves in most bookstores. 
When I go to Barnes & Noble and I find King mixed in with literature rather than on a shelf of its own genre, I am both immensely sad and immensely annoyed that things have been left to that state of affairs. Not to say that genre fiction isn't literature, mind you, it just makes things very difficult. If you're a horror fan, to find new works to read simply by shelf browsing. It's an old complaint, and it's not one that I'm prone to rehashing too much here, but it does tell you something about my age that even though I fully embrace ebooks, uh, I do enjoy going to a bookstore and browsing the shelves for new material. When you say monster, most people have some favorite fantastic image that comes to mind, whether that's a movie creature or a giant spider or something designed by Guillermo del Toro. Some people, though, see other things when words like monster are used. Some people see fires, marches, camps, mass murder. Some people see sociopaths put into positions of extreme authority. Sometimes people are the monsters. The rules for writing an intelligent, quote-unquote, human monster are roughly the same as for any other villain or any other character. They have to be doing what they're doing for some reason. It may not be, and probably isn't, a good reason. It may not even make logical sense to the outside world. But for someone to commit horrific acts does require a reason. Whether you choose to convey that or not is up to you, but be very careful that if you are writing such a character and it's grounded in the real world, that you look at how your tone is coming across. I'm not personally the sort of person who believes that a piece of fiction can be held responsible for the acts of real-world people, but there are subtler shades to that argument. Make sure that your monster's actions are viewed as the horrific acts that they are, even if you're doing them for what seems like a good reason in their own internal logic. You have set your monster up to be an antagonist and a villain, so be sure to keep them aligned as such. Hannibal Lecter is one of those types of characters who dances all over that moral line. He is a murderer. Without question or reservation, he has murdered and eaten people. The horrifying thing, well, one of them, about Hannibal is how cultivated and civil and charming he is. You would not suspect him of being a murderous cannibal were you to meet him at a cocktail party. Lecter has a consistent logic that some can even empathize with. Who has not been frustrated by a rude and corrupt individual at least a few times in their life and wished that said person would receive some horrible karmic retribution? In the words of Clarice Starling, he eats his victims, quote, to show his contempt for those who exasperate him, or to perform a public service. In the case of the flautist Benjamin Raspail, he did it to improve the sound of the Baltimore Philharmonic Orchestra. Something else I recommend you look for when seeking inspiration for monsters is folklore. Folklore can give us new perspectives on old legends or old legends that have just been forgotten. We can adapt and use. A Deathless by Catherine Valenti is definitely not a horror novel, but she drew all manner of amazing things from Russian folklore and tied them together in a little package of Stalinist Russia. Go for less traditionally available folklore, too. There's a lot of stuff out there that isn't from typical Western sources that you can adapt from. Kappas, for example. Vampire-like creatures who live in rivers and have a little divot in their skull to hold water. 
If they lose the water, they become powerless. Kappas love cucumbers. And to protect yourself and your family, you could carve your names into a cucumber and leave the cucumber out for them. That's an actual legendary creature. Or the Malaysian vampire creature, the Penangalan, a beautiful woman's head flying about with its stomach and entrails floating along behind it. So, all in all, you've got many options to play with for monsters, and you can certainly make your own or combine elements. There's no shortage of sources to draw from. Always bear in mind that you can apply the same general horror principles to creating a monster. Take reality or normalcy and twist it into the uncanny. Your readers will thank you for it. Okay, well, that's about it for this episode. A few things to mention before I go. First, uh, this podcast has been put on the Ursa Major Awards recommended list for Best Magazine, which is the category in which they judge podcasts. Episodes 1 through 6, I believe, are the episodes for which the podcast is eligible. And nominations are open now, so if you like the show and you feel you'd want to nominate it for the award, you can visit www.ursamajorawards.org. I also have two short stories eligible for the award this year. My story, The Torch, in Roar, Volume 7, from Fur Planet, and Apostasy, from Fang, Volume 7, also from Fur Planet. If you'd like to help the show in another way, please consider leaving a review on the podcast delivery method of your choice. Reviews really do help increase visibility. For other writing resources, be sure to check out the Furry Writers Guild. They've got a list of available paid markets for furry fiction, as well as forums and a Slack chat for discussion. It's a really great place to meet and hang out with other writers. I spend a lot of time in the Slack when I'm not doing other things or actually getting writing done. Or when I need help, I pop in and ask a question, and usually someone will hazard a guess even if they don't have the actual answer I need. If you're interested in developing your writing skills, the fandom does have its own residential writing workshop. Applications for 2017 are closed, but you can start thinking about next year and read up on it at www.rar, that's R-A-W-R, dot community. And finally, if you would like to submit comments or ask questions while on the podcast, you can email me at podcast at chriswilliamsauthor.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Claus Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'll talk to you again very soon. And remember, when everything looks bleakest, don't let anything stop you from writing. <laughs>